Welcome back, rich girls, new and old, to the Money with Katie podcast. I've got a good one for you today where I attempt to answer a question that has been constantly on my mind over the last six to eight months. Is house hacking still lucrative in 2022's housing market? That was the question that I set out to answer when I decided to pursue a house hack in Fort Collins, Colorado. For the uninitiated, Fort Collins is about an hour and a half north of Denver, and if you've spent really any time on Zillow in the last year, you know that that market is just crazy. But the personal finance community reveres house hacking. And why wouldn't they? It sounds like the ultimate shelter arbitrage. So for those unfamiliar with the concept, let's briefly review what house hacking is. House hacking involves purchasing a multifamily property, usually. Sometimes people will rent out a basement or a room in a single-family home, and then using the rent from the second unit or the extra room to cover most or all of the housing costs associated with ownership. Of course, this does assume a few things that have to be true. For one thing, the market has to support a monthly rent that's high enough to offset the monthly costs of ownership, and the monthly costs of ownership can't be so overinflated that there's no chance the rental market could support it. So, Predictably, there are a few rules of thumb that govern what's considered a good house hack. But like most things, the expenses on the margins can really make or break the deal. So I think the first question that makes sense to answer and the first question that I had was, how much should you be able to charge in rent? This one is hilariously difficult to answer because it keeps fucking changing. When I first started learning about house hacking— from people in Dayton, Ohio, who swore up and down that it was the only way to exist on this planet, the guideline was that you would want monthly rent to equal roughly 2% of the property's value. This was about four years ago. So in Dayton, Ohio, a duplex you purchased for $200,000 should rent for $4,000 per month to hit this benchmark comfortably. Of course, if you live in one side, you would charge $2,000 for the other side and call it a day. That would be comfortably hitting the 2% rule. But when we fast forward to 2020, while I really can't support any of this empirically, it seemed like that guideline quietly got adjusted. In the years following the foreclosure bonanza of 2008, property values were low enough that getting 2% property value in rent per month was allegedly reasonable. But now, the same voices in the space were adjusting their estimates. Now it's the 1% rule. So I wanted to talk to a member of the rich girl community, Mallory, about her experience with rental property investing in general. So I asked her to explain the 1% rule for us. In layman's terms is you take 1% of the property's value, and that is a good rule of thumb of what you should be getting for rent. So that $200,000 duplex that we used should generate $4,000 per month? Now we're only expecting it to generate $2,000 or $1,000 per side. Now, if you're like me and you live in a generally high cost of living area compared to the national average, you're probably like, who would pay $2,000 per month for one side of a $200,000 duplex in Dayton, Ohio anyway? 
So you can imagine my surprise when I started working with a local agent in Fort Collins and learned that in Fort Collins, you're doing well if you can get 0.5% of the total property value per month in rent. All right, I thought, let's, you know, slow your roll, house hacking nuts, 0.5% per month. This margin is slowly disappearing, and this is sounding less and less tenable. So why does the goal rental rate keep getting adjusted downward? I'm not entirely positive why the rates keep getting lowered, but I would offer up two hypotheses. The first is that home values have overappreciated in the last few years. So while they may have been underpriced in the aftermath of 08 and therefore a bargain, they're either accurately priced now or overpriced now. So simple economics would dictate, listen to me, smart, simple economics. This is coming from someone who got a B minus in Econ 101. Uh, that if you can buy an asset for well below market value, it is going to cash flow a lot easier than an asset with a purchase price that is already inflated. So the people who tell you that they made a killing on the property they purchased in 2012 are not lying to you, but the housing market isn't static and things have changed. Rent prices have not unilaterally increased nationwide the way homeownership proponents would have you believe. Think about it. If rents were increasing as much as these homes were allegedly appreciating, then our 2% rule would have held steady. But it didn't. At least, not in Fort Collins. The cost to rent an $800,000 property is just $3,000 per month. That's a 0.3% of the value per month. Understandably so, it's really hard to justify a rental market that could support an $8,000 per month rental rate. Interestingly, and I will link this article in the show notes, there is a really fascinating piece of data about the last decade in the housing market. So while there's a choice sampling of markets where rents went up faster than home values, fewer than three are listed, by the way, in the vast majority of cities, the houses became more expensive far more quickly than the rents went up. So if you're trying to house hack, doing so in a market where the average rent has gone up 74% in the last 10 years, but the average home value has gone up 124%, like San Jose, California, you're probably unlikely to be profitable. Unfortunately, you are almost definitely not going to be able to cover your monthly costs. Whereas on the flip side, a market where rents rose by 21%, but home values only went up 18%, like Virginia Beach, may offer a little bit more of an opportunity for arbitrage. So Mallory noted that even she has seen this phenomenon with one of the properties that she owns. So she bought in 2020 prior to this wild housing market taking off and realized recently that in the last year, it has gained quite a bit of value. Our first investment property was a duplex. Uh, Actually, our two and only two investment properties thus far are duplexes. So we are definitely going the route of multifamily homes. And my husband and I live and we are natives to the market that we invested in. So we knew the area very well and spent some time obviously educating ourselves on real estate investing prior to pulling the trigger. We purchased this duplex in October of 2020 was when we closed And the neighborhood that it's in, it's in a really solid location in a northern suburb of Kansas City. It is in a neighborhood that is, I would say the homes are, for the most part, they're single family homes that were built in the 80s to early 90s. But there's this one side of it that is 
duplexes. It's a really solid location in a good school district. We got it for a heck of a deal. My husband and I were just talking about this one the other night um, because our mortgage lender, who we have a great relationship with, sent us a message was like, do you know what this is worth now? We bought it for $185,000 in October of 2020. So one bed, one bath, and the two bed, one bath. The rent that we get for the two bed, one bath is $1,000. And the rent that we get for the one bed, one bath is $685,000. $190,000 for this property was a really, really good deal. Our mortgage owner that we were talking to, he's done some deals on other duplexes in this area. He was telling us, and I believe it, that we could sell, which we aren't, but we could sell this property for what they're going at right now is about $320,000. It's gained so much value, in fact, that if she were buying it now for today's price, it wouldn't even come close to hitting the 1% rule for rents in the area. The rent that we receive monthly is just a hair short of 1700 so it's 1695 for the two units. So like I mentioned, that's a little short of the 1% rule, but it's right about on there. It kind of brings to a point too, as I mentioned, to go back to that piece of the conversation, the home is probably worth about 300,000. Let's be conservative, 290 to 300,000, even though our mortgage lender was telling us 320, let's use that. If you use the rent that we're getting today off of that market value, you're not even close to the 1% rule. But we bought this thing for 185 and we're holding. If nothing else, this thought exercise proves the point that real estate is hyper-local and house hacking may be perfectly viable in some markets and way less so in others. So why don't we go through briefly why we decided to attempt a house hack? Simply put, Our rent is $3,000 a month, and while we are very happy to pay it to live the way that we do, I never want to settle on a decision where there could be a more optimal path forward. So the house hacking sentiments sounded intriguing enough to pressure test my beliefs. Call me baby Elon, but I want to constantly optimize, and our rent was really the only non-optimized part of our financial life. I'm a big believer that the homeownership versus renting debate is actually a lot closer than it appears on the surface when all is said and done because the costs associated with being a homeowner are nearly infinite and unpredictable in nature. But house hacking? That was something that really intrigued me, and with good reason, too. Personal finance Twitter and Instagram is loaded with people selling courses about how to live for free, and anytime anything is offered for free, particularly the most expensive line item on my budget, my frugal ass jumps on it. So the idea of erasing my biggest expense every month was understandably appealing, and I wanted to see if it was actually possible, so I decided to put it to the test. We decided to meet with a very passionate real estate investor who had been featured on the podcast Bigger Pockets, and for some reason that made me feel better, like he would understand that I'm not trying to get hosed by some granite countertops. We met him one night after work for craft beer, because Colorado, and I tentatively laid out my intentions. But the more that I explained myself, the more I realized it sounded a little bit too good to be true. It went a little something like this. Okay, so we have close to seven figures in the stock market already, to which he interrupted and let me know that that was dangerous and made him feel nervous. Like, okay, yes, I know. I I will not be convinced that long-term stock market investing is risky, but we'll move on. Um, 
He's perfectly nice, and I like him. But it was clear that he only invests in real estate the way that I only invest in the stock market, and so we felt mutually uncomfortable about one another's strategies. But anyway, moving on. I said, we rent on Mountain Avenue for $3,000 per month, and we love it, but we're also interested in house hacking. And, well, I don't want to put six figures down, and so we were thinking about doing a VA loan because my husband's in the military. Oh, and did I mention that we're actually going to be leaving Fort Collins in two years? So, like, we'd have to eventually rent out both units, and really, I just want to cover my costs while I'm here, and then cash flow once we're gone. And, oh, by the way, I also don't want to do literally any work on this place. I want it to be moving ready. Is that too much to ask? And he pushed away from the table and set down his beer and he said, yes, yes it is. He let us know that we are not in a great cash flow market. I had never heard of this before. The idea that a market could be good but not cash flow didn't really make sense to me intuitively. But we are, however, in a good appreciation market. He told me that annualized appreciation in Fort Collins over the last 50 years was 6%. I did look it up after the fact. I think it's a little bit closer to five and a half, but still, that does trounce the national average of 3%. But remember, I wanted to house hack for cash flow, not necessarily to bank on appreciation. And as the conversation progressed, one thing became very clear. The rents in this market are not high enough to pay for the current cost of these homes, unless you buy a real piece of shit that you dump a bunch of money in and spend a lot of time renovating, and the short answer there for me is no thank you. And it kind of makes sense, right? Like, after all, when you look at this concept critically, why would someone who can afford $2,000 in rent not just buy a $200,000 home? Even with your taxes and insurance, the monthly payment would only be $900. In other words, the economics of the situation and the whole human behavior element didn't quite check out for me. And that's not to say that it doesn't happen or that there aren't markets where it works. I know that wherever there is demand, people will flow to that area and will capture that potential gain. And I I know that that happens because I know people who do it and do make quite a bit of money doing it. But on the face of it, it doesn't really logically make sense that there'd be a rational rental market to support those kinds of margins on a national scale in this market. I wanted to know if this was normal, so I asked Mallory. You had very real experience, and the one percent rule is getting harder, as you mentioned, as the housing market goes up at a rate that's higher than the way rents are rising, while rents are rising. So back to our conversation over beers. The more that I thought about it, the more that I decided house hacking for appreciation alone was a pretty big departure from what I had intended to do. My intention was to erase my housing expense. The reality is that I'd probably have the same monthly housing expense after the rent from one unit shipped away at some of the monthly payment. He made the point that Fort Collins is trending in the same way that Boulder, Colorado did, and that in 20 years, Fort Collins' market will resemble Boulder's now, where the median home value is $1.2 million because they stopped issuing building permits. It's at this point in the conversation that I realized how little I really know about this market. I moved here less than a year ago. Apparently, Fort Collins is out of water permits, 
question mark and running out of space, double question mark. So he intimated that we are heading into the same demand spike that Boulder saw and that now's a great time to get in and make a bet on appreciation. To which I say, that is very compelling logic, but I read the big short and I know that that mindset put a lot of people underwater in 08. There are other reasons too why house hacking might not be as much of a slam dunk as people make it sound. Even if the numbers do work out, it's also a lifestyle choice that you have to be comfortable with. And Mallory did a really good job of articulating why some people who can make the numbers work still choose not to do it. I do think house hacking is very challenging in a high cost of living area. The other things to consider are when it comes to house hacking, I would just add you, you have to be dedicated. You have to really want to do that. There are sacrifices that you're going to make right? You know, you're sharing a wall with your tenants. There are some cons that can come to that, getting too close with your tenants. There are also things that I would consider as a woman. If I were a single woman who was looking to house hack, you do want to factor in the safety aspect of it, who the tenant might be on the other side, if they know that you're living there alone. I mean, all the things that you think about as a woman, but I think that when it comes to house hacking, you know, you've got to be willing to give up some sacrifices. And one of those sacrifices, you're probably going to live in a home that is not as nice as maybe the apartment that you would rent. And it may not be in the most ideal location, depending on your budget. So I do think that those are things to consider. Um, and you have to be willing to be okay with it. You know, people are going to look at you sideways, just like they do at any time we do things that are different than the mainstream. But you have to think about, you know, if you're going to house hack and you want to date and you're bringing people over that you're dating and like, they might be like, what in the world? Where do you live? You have to be okay with those kind of things and you have to be able to own it. And some people, they think they want that, but then they get into it and they're like, yeah, this isn't actually like how I wanted to live. And then they're in a position where they're not ready to move out or fill the vacancy or they sell the home, you know, early. I don't know. So I do think those are things to consider is just the kind of aspect of how you will be living and the sacrifices you will make there, which I think can definitely be worth it. But some people just can't handle that long-term. Honestly, I think you can count me in that camp. I was all gung-ho on this idea until I saw the duplexes that were in our budget and realized wow, my quality of life is about to go way down. Is that worth it for the potential appreciation? And I'll be honest, if it were cash flowing and totally free housing, I might be down for that. But in this instance, it was not as compelling. So let's talk numbers because I think it's really interesting to look at the reality of high cost of living markets and attempting something like this where the house prices are just so high. Now, Fort Collins is not especially high when compared to the classics like L.A., New York, San Francisco, but when compared to the average American city, it is about twice as much. For that reason, are you sitting down? The cost of a two-bedroom, two-bathroom duplex in a decent area easily exceeds a million dollars. I asked Mallory what she thought about whether or not buying into a market that was overpriced would make a serious difference in long-term returns, and this is what she had to say. I think the price is very important, but in a market like today's market, if you are an investor that's looking to buy and hold something for the long-term, I think you can be a little bit more lenient on that, knowing that you are, like my husband and I, for example, 
anticipate holding these properties until we are well past retirement age, potentially even passing them down to our children and things of that nature. If you're someone who is maybe just trying to house hack and get into the real estate investing world and you don't know how long you might hold it, I probably wouldn't suggest sacrificing the price. When I did the breakdown on two duplexes in the market that I'd consider living in, it looked like our monthly costs would be around $5,800. Now, that's just principal, interest, taxes, and insurance. That does not include maintenance or capital expenditures. That is just the guaranteed minimum monthly rate that we'd be paying. The rent that we could expect from one of the units, around $2,500. So we're back to square one. After a multiple six-figure down payment, paying roughly $3,000 per month for housing, hoping and praying it continues to appreciate the way we would expect it to, and taking on about $900,000 of debt in the meantime. That feels less like an investment and too close to speculation for me. And hey, maybe I'll be wrong and these houses will appreciate 10% annually and I'll look like an idiot. But frankly, the size of that risk was just too uncomfortable for me personally to take on. Still, the FOMO of rental properties is real. I question my belief system on this literally once a week. But I think those who have made a killing in rentals acquired the majority of their properties before the giant market spike this year. It's tempting to believe that we will continue trending up and and feel urgency to get in now, but examining the reality of the rent versus purchase price discussion would suggest otherwise. Why would investors continue to buy properties if the rental market can't support it? Eventually, demand has to begin declining because the numbers literally stop making sense. It's no longer nearly as lucrative as it used to be if you buy at the prices that these houses are listed at right now, at least in Fort Collins. After all, when you look at the 10 best cities for house hacking in the U.S., which I will link the list in the show notes as well, I don't see a single medium or high cost of living city listed. It's a lot of places in Ohio, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Illinois, Indiana. It's primarily cities in the Midwest that make the cut. So maybe that should be the headline of the house hacking articles, how to live in the Midwest for free. And I'm not shitting on the Midwest. I did grow up there. Okay, I'm kind of shitting on it, but I feel like I'm justified in doing so because I spent the first 18 years of my life at Michigan and Ohio. But it does seem that this phenomenon only works in cities where the price-to-rent ratio is favorable. And I'd assume that you'd see the same, you know, poor cash flow, decent appreciation argument in more expensive cities, but I'm just not yet convinced that that's, well, convincing. So my next steps for my house hacking aspirations We have pivoted slightly. We decided to keep an open mind and to continue looking at multifamily properties, but we're adding single-family residences to the mix, too, with the idea being that if we can find one that's still somehow miraculously underpriced, we may be able to cover our costs after we move anyway and end up with a paid-off property that's worth something someday. I would, though, be remiss not to mention the risks associated with a, uh, a strategy like this one. For example, appreciation not panning out the way that we would hope. It was actually kind of surprising to me when I ran the numbers how long it would take for us to be quote-unquote profitable. I think we'd be underwater for the first 15 years. Shitty tenants or vacancies that are unplanned. The fact that I'd have to be an actual out-of-state landlord, which, uh, 
buying a house that we either can't sell easily or have to sell during a down market for some unforeseen circumstance. If something happens to our finances and we can no longer pay the mortgage in addition to whatever mortgage or rent we're paying to live where we live when we move. And honestly, I think I had some unrealistic expectations about the amount of work it would entail. I asked Mallory what she thought about the idea that rental property investing income in any use case is passive. I think that that is a lie for most <laughs> for most beginners. It can be true, yes, for the very seasoned investors that have large portfolios and it makes sense for them to hire out property management companies and all of those things. Yes, when you get to that point where you have a larger portfolio or your net operating income allows for property management, Yeah, then it really is passive for the most part, unless your property manager has like some big issue that he can't even handle and he's calling you about it. In our situation, and I think for most early investors in the real estate market or young investors in the real estate market that are just getting started through house hacking or just purchasing your first property, in most cases, particularly in today's market where it's hard to get that 1% rule in place or meet that, you're going to want to manage the property or properties on your own, or it would make the most sense for you too. And I think it's important from a stance of not just optimizing your net operating income, but also in the sense of it teaches you how to be a landlord. I think there's a lot to be said about doing a job and understanding it before you're hiring it out, which is what my husband and I are doing and we're learning a lot from. So I think that for us, it's not passive. Yeah, there are some months where we don't hear anything from our tenants, and you could say it's passive in those months, but then there are the months that the tenant tells us that they're not renewing, and we've got to post and relist and get a new tenant in, or tenant calls and, you know, little things that you call your landlord about. Your toilet won't stop running, or the light bulb, like light bulbs that need replaced. I mean, there are tenants who won't even replace light bulbs, and you have to go do that. My husband's, like, driving out there to fix a light bulb. I would just like to state for the record that I am the tenant that calls for replaced light bulbs. I definitely get my money's worth for my rent, and my landlord is very kind and always being patient when I text her at 7 a.m. on a Saturday and tell her that a smoke detector is beeping and I can't reach it. (laughs) So here is my savage, straight-to-the-point commentary. I think a lot of people have made a lot of money in real estate over the last decade. And now I think those same people are trying to make a lot of money by teaching other people how to make a lot of money in real estate. But in today's market, I don't think the same opportunities exist in nearly as many places as they used to. I spoke to a real estate investor who I won't name who effectively confirmed as much. He said, I started investing in other things now because I just don't think there's as much money to be made in it now as there used to be. The prices are higher. The margins are lower, and it's just not the cash grab I wanted it to be. At least, I don't think, but I'll keep you posted. Because like I said, open mind. So, I want to know, do you have a house hack that's cash flowing that you bought in the last 12 to 18 months? If so, where do you live? And how is the housing market where you live? You can email me at podcast at moneywithkatie.com to tell me that's podcast at moneywithkatie.com. All right, that is all for today, Rich Girls. I will see you next Wednesday. 
same time, same place on the Money with Katie podcast.